Intrinsic Labs presents Reignited, a podcast about how we can reignite our inner drive. Big welcome to um, the third episode of Reignited, the Intrinsic Labs podcast. Uh, so good to have you on the show and really intrigued to have a conversation today on leadership and uh, also about the idea of followership as well. Love to just hear a little bit about your background so far and what got you here. Mm-hmm. Sure. So I'm a social psychologist by training. Um, and I now work, as you said, at IMD Business School, which is a management school based in Lausanne, Switzerland. And it's been a bit of a funny journey to get here. I knew from the time I was 15 that I wanted to be a professor of psychology. So I decided at 15 that I wanted to do that. And it's kind of cool that I'm almost 40 and uh, I'm doing kind of what I decided at 15. So I don't know if many people can say that. And actually, it's a good fit, right? So, well, at least I think it's a good wow. fit. Um, but I started in this field um, because I wanted to uh, study specifically wisdom. So I went to graduate school to study with a man named Robert Sternberg, who's an expert in intelligence. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so he was specifically um, spe- studying at the time um, one dimension of intelligence, which Paul Baltus out of Germany defined as expert, wis- uh, expert knowledge in the fundamental pragmatics of life or wisdom. And so I wanted to study with him to understand what is wisdom and can you measure wisdom? And he was actually doing a lot around training for wisdom. Like, can you educate kids to be wise as they get older? Um, but as I was going to um, going to school, this was in the school, I was the Enron and WorldCom scandals were erupting in the U.S. And I, you know, I was watching these with fascination because these were clearly not errors of intelligence. These were very smart men. And I say men because they were mostly men at the top of these of these debacles. Um, but they were really error, errors of wisdom. And so I was curious about applying wisdom to the management and leadership world. And so when I left grad school, I went directly to business school and um, worked at business schools around the world. This is the fourth country in which I worked. One of the things that I was reading your, your article in the, the Harvard Business Review, uh, Jennifer, was idea of, of of keeping a good balance, different styles of our leadership. And just curious if you could maybe share a bit more about what some of those tensions are mm-hmm. uh, as leaders. It's so important, I think, to understand that as we think about our own motivation in, you know, in work and in, in, in organizations. Sure. So um, we identified, and I say we, along with my co-authors, Mike Wade and Liz Tarantino, um, identified seven tensions that leaders face in the digital age, kind of between the tension of, we're still not fully in the digital age. I think there's some of the traditional leadership the traditional world leadership competencies or behaviors that leaders still need. And our seven tensions are expert and learner, being the expert versus being the learner, being the teller versus being the listener, being the tactician versus being the visionary, being the constant versus being the adapter, being the perfectionist versus being the accelerator, being the analyst versus being the intuitionist, and being the power holder versus the power sharer. So we've identified these seven tensions and we, we say that leaders need to sort of walk or balance between these two poles of each tension in order to be successful leaders. Really interesting. And do you think, Jennifer, like we'll go into some of these in a, in a second, but just a, a broader question, which was around, do you think people are motivated by different parts of the spectrum? Do you think it's a very individual thing where one person likes to you know, just finds one position more natural, more motivating or. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think there's individual differences on where each person lies at kind of our default. And that is essentially what our theory is about is getting people out of just always being in their default and being more sensitive to the situation and sort of what does the other side look like? And I mean, of course, 
we're not always asking leaders to um, exist or to perform at the extremes of these poles, but also, you know, what does that space in between the two look like as well? So, but everyone, you start with a default for sure and your comfort zone on each of these and sort of know what my comfort zone is on each of them. And it, it, even, you know, I guess it's the best thing about studying these topics is you can constantly be analyzing yourself and, um, but yes, everyone has a kind of individual difference. For yourself, I mean, it's obviously someone working in research yeah. and teaching and how, what did, what did it make you think about yourself on that spectrum? Yeah. So I, I would definitely say I'm, I'm kind of in the middle there, um, maybe more towards, hmm, okay, I would say I would want to be more towards the learner side, but if I'm being honest, I'm maybe more towards the expert side, which is where I've had to learn in my leadership and I've done coaching around this because you, know, you would think as a professor, people want you to tell things. <laughs> but actually what's interesting is that, or maybe it's not that interesting, it was interesting to me, and this was my big aha moment in executive education, that it's a lot of you learning yourself and meeting the client where they are, not where you think they should be. Um, which is a little bit also the listener versus the teller. Um, but I would like to say I'm more towards the learner side, but if I'm being honest, I think I default more on the expert side. And, and it's hard because, you know, I, I think you, you, I don't know if it's hard, but you erroneously believe as a professor, people hire you to give answers, but actually some people hire you more to listen and to reflect with them. And so I think that has a lot to do with the listening and the, and the learning. Because I, I, I have a similar interest. I've been running an organization for the last nine years and, so I feel like people are hiring me to find an answer to things and uh, come to a solution and drive to a solution as well. But now with the Intrinsic Labs um, starting, I'm really trying to help others um, find success, find their motivation and what they do. Different uh, start. I've been learning to coach, for example, which has been really mm -hmm. uh, revealing, interesting. But everything you said about listening really resonates very, very, very strongly there. We talk a lot about in, in motivation, thinking about mastery. How do you get better at something and be the kind of best version of that you could be in that that area or domain? And just curious how you, you know, how can a leader who wants to achieve that mastery get that, this balance right between the both those extremes really as well, both the, the listening and the the telling, if you like, as well. So there's a few things to unpack there. Is first mm -hmm. of all, you talk about mastery and motivation to to master something. I mean, I think there's different theories on on mastery. Um, there's certainly, you know, people have certain talents and that's one thing I learned, um, from working with Robert Sternberg is sort of like, we come in here with different levels, for example, of IQ, right. Or different proclivities and different abilities. And I think that of course affects our mastery. I don't think I could ever be, um, a, you know, a star tennis player, Venus Williams. I just don't have that ability. Right. But then there's also the motivation that comes in. Are you willing as and I know there's been research that has debunked this, but I, I still like the idea of Malcolm, Glad Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 hours, right? Are you really willing to put in those 10,000 hours? So I think, you know, already mastery has these two um, inputs, right? Is, is raw ability and then, and then practice. And most of the research says that actually the practice is more important than the raw ability, but certainly we don't ignore the first one. Um, then when you say, okay, what does this have to do with these seven tensions? I think that, you know, it's a great question and I, and I am thinking about it as I speak. So I'm trying to, to learn a bit myself and at the same mm -hmm. time show that I'm not a complete, uh, unexpert or whatever, inexpert, mm -hmm. kind of word, but I can, I, you know what I mean? I think that first of all, in order to see yourself as a leader that moves along a spectrum, you have to be motivated. You have to be humble enough 
to say that my default isn't always right. Mm. And you have to be humble enough to listen to the world around you and to be mindful of what, what is the environment and the people around you demanding. Mm. Um, and I think you also have to admit your vulnerabilities. And, and to me that what's so interesting is that life is always, and I'm not saying this because I'm like some kind of wise genius, but I mean, there's so much research backing this up. That success in life is this balance between here's attention, maybe as you know, you need to master something in order to be a great anything, mm. you have to show mastery. But at the same time, I think we know more and more about, you know, this idea of like servant leadership, or being humble as a leader and, and being vulnerable mm. as well, and, and admitting what you don't know. And, and that allows for empathy that allows for empowerment of others and, and empowerment of your followers and motivation of your followers as well. Um, I mean, if you're always giving the answers, I don't think your, your followers can learn very much either, right? So it's not only what's good for you in the situation, but also what's good for, for those around you. And that was a really roundabout, circuitous way of asking your question, because I don't think I've thought through it enough myself, which I love questions like that, because they challenge me. But no, um, right. I would need to think about that more deeply, I think. No, but I think you raised a lot of really interesting points here. And one I think you mentioned was about the, the 10,000 hour rule. And I'm also you know, a fan of uh, Malcolm Gladwell. And uh, in my previous life, I worked with one of his behavioral insights units that he'd, he'd helped mm. found and so on. If you've got this 10,000 hour rule, which tends to be very, you know, it does suggest that, you know, it, it is a kind of expert model, right? You, you get a certain number of hours. And I know it's, a, it's just an estimate, of course, but you become the expert. And it sounds like you, as you said at the beginning, um, Jennifer, you were one of the few people who, found a passion, I think he's at 15 and managed to actually see it all the way through, which is, which is remarkable. How do you sort of unexpert to yourself? I don't know if that's the right word, but how do you sort of almost, um, you may have all this expertise, but yeah. how do you as a leader I try think and taking, you, to... taking yourself out of your comfort zone. That's so my, kind of my life philosophy is uh, magic never happens in your comfort zone. So as soon as I, I mean, that's essentially why mm -hmm. I moved to Switzerland. Um, I had a job that I love, a country that I love. I, I couldn't have loved the Netherlands anymore than any other country right. in the world. I mean, I was such a fan and I had a good tenured, I mean, to be a tenured professor at a university is like the pinnacle of professorship, mm -hmm. what everyone strives for. And I, I was in my mid thirties, my early to mid thirties. And I thought, you know, uh, I'm, I'm a bit too comfortable for this part of my life. I need to kind of shake up my world a bit. So at IMB, we don't have tenure. So we're evaluated in the beginning, um, every three years and after that, every year. And, and I thought, okay, I'm such a security um, <laughs> focused person that I thought, okay, that's going to make me super anxious and I want to see what happens to myself. Um, so I, I, I think, yeah, taking yourself out of your comfort zone will help you to figure out what you are not a master of and what you still have to learn and sort of humble you. And so I'm, I'm constantly thinking about that. And I think mastery is also a privilege in some way, right? Mastery, it suggests that you have, you have had that time that you've been able to dedicate to something mm -hmm. for 10,000 hours, which, you know, is such a socioeconomic privilege, is such a gender privilege mm -hmm. in some countries, is such a age privilege. And, um, and so I'm really grateful for also being able to have those 10,000 hours at a point in my life before I had a family and everything like that, because I can tell you now I'm struggling just to find an hour right, to do stuff per day. I'm just curious in, in terms of this, like how this idea of like plateauing, I suppose, or sort of, you, know, you would have been very comfortable. I'm sure you've done a, a very strong job in, in, in Groningen and, and seen that all the way through. But what, um, what was the motivation? I'm just curious, like why, what, what drove yeah, you to Yeah, I say think that, I was uh, afraid that I would stop learning. 
Um, mm. And I, to me, complacency always equals no learning. And so or or too comfortable means no learning because when you're and I see this all the time, I work with companies around digital transformation. The worst companies to work with are the companies that are too comfortable, that they're mm -hmm. not seeing the burning platform because the executives come in and they're like, okay, you know, why are we listening to something around digital transformation? We've had continuous growth for the last 25 quarters, right? So nice. to me, the enemy of learning is comfort. Mm -hmm. Um, and as soon as you, you know, go out of that comfort zone is when you experience failure and, you know, what is essentially resilience, it's coming back from failure because you've learned something. And so for me, as I said, I was too young to be in that, in, in my own mind. And, and I certainly identify with you. Um, my grandmother, who I'm very close to, she's still alive. Um, and she was child of, of, of Lebanese immigrants who were both um, illiterate and so they couldn't read or write in either English or Arabic mm. and she learned to really read at 26 and and it was always like education was especially for a, a Middle Eastern woman in our, my household was always like the thing that you have to pursue and you can't um, you can't uh, be complacent on that at all and so security for me was like, you know, I was gonna provide for my family what they weren't able to provide for me. But I think also you have to balance that with thinking about what your own needs are as well. Recruiting for my, um, my successor at Sarah Education where I'm, I'm, I'm in the last nine years. And yeah, I think one of the tests I think our board is looking for is, is the person gonna take things to a new direction, a new level, a new, because I think if it, it's, it's um, if it stays the same, if it's kind of maintenance or what I've always, I've, something I've found is that the organization tends to to almost not just plateau, but actually start to, to drift downwards because uh, there's mm -hmm. nothing keeping it moving forward. Openness to learn again feels very critical, almost for renewal, right? For keeping ourselves motivated and broadening our mastery over time. Is that is that fair? Maybe on, on that. Mm -hmm. I think that's fair. And also really being critical of, of your own complacency and your own comfort zone. Um, and it, and mm -hmm. as I said, you know, the ability to learn is a, is a privilege. Right. I, I think, you know, when you have, I see myself socioeconomically having such a privilege of being able to, um, you know, even take time out and to be a working woman with a child and to have someone able to care for my child during the day. But I know in many places in the world, that's not possible or that's not even close to the norm. And so also I realized that like I sort of have a responsibility because as they say, you know, with great power comes great responsibility. Well, with great privilege mm -hmm. comes great responsibility as well. And I think for me, maybe that's been the biggest struggle um, since becoming a mother is really how do you, you know, just surviving as a, in work is sometimes enough, but really like challenging yourself and bringing value to the client and bringing thought leadership, which is what I'm essentially hired for, mm. sometimes hard to find time for. Yeah. Yeah, no, let me just stay on that for a little bit because I was just, actually, I was just on, funny enough, on a LinkedIn conversation with the editor of a magazine called Working Mother, actually. So it's really about okay. that. I think it's mostly in the States, but, but also in other parts of the world. But I guess one of the things that when I was researching my book, Jennifer, was that um, so often, and certainly in my work context, I've met many mothers who are literally um, don't have time to do, take a lunch break, right? They're running between, they want to, they have to get in, get all the things done. They're incredibly uh, dedicated and conscientious. They want to make sure they do everything right. But there's almost no downtime because the way that... Uh, the day is managed allows for it doesn't really allow for that at all and how do you because i think it was very powerful what you said about the idea to keep learning to keep um growing and developing but it is a privilege i'm just wondering how um in that working mother example is there 
you know, as society, can we do things differently? Can organizations help with that? It just feels like such a, a bind we're putting, um, you know, women into if that's what really the reality might be for many. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think we're still trying to figure out in terms of the evolution of society, women doing something other than child rearing is a very, very, very recent development, right? So I think we still have some growing pains that we have to go through to get this right. Um, I think it has a lot to do with culture. Um, so I come from a country, well, in the U.S., I was, I was um, in my early, well, my mid-20s when I left the U.S. for the first time. So I can't really, I wasn't in that parenting age or thinking about that to be able to comment on it. But I know that like maternal maternity leave is not exactly ideal in the U.S. Um, the Netherlands, I think, is much better. It was very gender equal in the workplace. There would be fathers who would take daddy days. So I really think it is has to be a structural um, a, stru- a structural initiative, um, not just down to individual families. And you know, does the country recognize the role of fathers? Right. We talked about leaders and then followers. Right. I think you know, sort of maybe when it comes to the household, maybe too much weight is put just like on the leader rather than the follower, maybe on the mother rather than the father. And so, you know, I really liked that in the Netherlands, my male colleagues would also take one day to work from home to be caring for their children 100% or, you know, work or staying at home to care for their children, maybe not working because that's sometimes hard. And here in Switzerland, it's very different. I think um, it's a bit more traditional and we have a ways to go before, you know, there's affordable childcare. It's an expensive country. And I know very few um, women in my neighborhood who do work. Um, so I think it is, it has to be, it has to be systematic. And I think it is cultural. And I think the society has to embrace certain ideas in order for it to be a culture where working mothers are not, I thought, by the way, I thought I was the only one who never took lunch breaks when I went to work, <laughs> but now I realize I'm not alone. For me, coming to IMD, when I came, I was, there was about 50 professors, only five women, and I w- am the first woman to have given birth while a professor there and have now stayed a year after giving birth. So that's the longest anyone's ever stayed. Wow. So I also consider that, I guess, I'm also trying to be a bit of helping the institution to learn and learning on my own um, as well. well. When I, my first guest on the, on the um the podcast was actually uh, was a professor at uh, HPS, uh, Harvard Business School, who is mm-hmm. um, uh, Raj Chowdhury. He was talking about working from mm-hmm. anywhere and remote working. And I, one of the things I'm really interested in from a motivation point of view is, is this going to allow um, women to have a lot more flexibility to do some of this and not feel such a pressure um, that if you cut out the, I can see many other pro- challenges about being away from the action, as it were, the office, et cetera, yeah. but just... Um, and that's such an interesting one. And I think, you know, we, we will be seeing what this looks like now more than ever. And I think this is, you know, this, this massive um, in, in vivo experiment that we're going through right now in terms of remote working and, and flex time and all of that. I mean, let's get back to the idea, um, Sharath, on, on, on mastery, right? In my experience and my understanding of what mastery is really requires absolute concentration and focus on some mm-hmm. sort of endpoint or goal. And I wonder if that focus is, you know, maybe some people can, um, can focus when they are at home. I think it depends on what your home is, yeah. right? Is it full of kids or is it full of people or, and do you, I mean, again, privilege, right? I have an office here. This is my office at mm-hmm. home. 
not everyone has a home that has a separate office and people are working on their mm. kitchen table where other people are. So I think, um, you know, always keeping in mind that there are different perspectives out there and different, ex different experiences, different privileges. But also on top of that, um, I've seen myself, like this was the first thing, and I think any w woman or man who is mm -hmm. primarily taking care of the child at home or has had a new child, um, the first thing that goes is the ability to social network, right? Like mm -hmm. when I have to get my work done, I don't go to lunch with my colleagues yeah. like I used to because I only have so many hours a day in the office. I'm not going to the dinners anymore or client mm -hmm. dinners I'm not proposing because um, I just can't be out at night. and. Mm -hmm. So I think the first thing that is sacrificed is the social network. And now that I've been um, working with a, with a child for about a year, just short of a year, um, you see how valuable that social network is. Mm. And that's where so much information is shared, where you start to understand, you know, learning, right? When you start to understand what is happening in the organization, where the organization is moving. Um, and when you're out of that network, I think it really is a disadvantage. And so I've thought a lot about it, like, how do we keep working mothers and fathers in the network um, when we, uh, yeah, when they have to be the primary caregiver um, mm. or, or not even, you know, I think even if they're not, it's also, I notice my husband doesn't go mm. on the evening dinners as much as he used to, um, which are, I think, really important. Strange. I was interviewing the head of a medical device, uh, actually a medical records company for the book and he was talking, he's, he's created a whole, everyone in his company uh, can work, has to work remotely, there's no office. And uh, he was saying one of the big things he, was, he found is he, was, he used to work in the US with a more traditional um, company in the same industry, but you know, they'd always have his speakers coming in to talk at seven o'clock in the evening, right? And of course, many of the working mothers could not attend those and they got cut off. And now he's saying, why can't they be on Zoom, for example? And you can just dial in after the kids are in bed, that kind of thing. It doesn't, I so the network stuff doesn't fully work, but I think we mm -hmm. can find ways to make it work. But it was, he was really on a mission to think about that kind of balance because mm -hmm. it, it's really profound. If that, that whole idea of sort of constantly learning, I think, is, is the core of mastery and being not just the expert, so you don't, don't plateau, but you know, the listener as well, just feels we've, we've, we are putting it in our, our bind right now, I think, in the way that things are structured, mm -hmm. right? One different one. The other question I was going to ask was around another one of the tensions you mentioned. I think was around intuition versus uh, analysis. I think you said, "Oh, mm -hmm. the analyst versus the in intuitor." Um, and I guess it's so interesting. I mean, I am an entrepreneur by uh, in terms of what I've been doing over the years. But uh, for so many entrepreneurs like me, I think we, we we hate analysis because we feel, you know, we've got we've got to trust our gut. Entrepreneurship or running organizations is really about. We can't feel as much as anything else. A whole sense of autonomy, the sense that we can um, drive things and lead organizations is based on an idea of being able to follow intuition and, and believe in that as well. And how do you balance that? I mean, how does someone like me try to yeah. uh, balance that edge, if you like? I mean, I think there's two things. Um, and for why, well, I don't know, there might be more than that, but there's two things that come to my mind for why entrepreneurs might be relying or thinking that they rely on their gut more than, than data. One is that, I mean, if you're really a true entrepreneur and breaking ground and something that hasn't been done, maybe there's not data that, that addresses your question. So you sort of have to go with that. Mm. Um, but I also think I've seen many um, entrepreneurs be led astray, astray because they haven't <laughs> looked at the data. Like, for example, um, like, is there a market potential for whatever I want to sell or distribute or produce or whatever right so i think it is a balance. i'm going to go back to my balance right there 
even though my PhD advisor said, be careful of once you create a theory, trying to <laughs> fit everything into that theory. Um, but I do think that, you know, even if you're an entrepreneur, yes, the gut is probably really important. But I also, as I said, I've seen many entrepreneurs fail because they have ignored the data and they think in their own. I mean, we know our intuit, intuition is biased. We know that it is um, often self-serving, that it is um, that it is susceptible to many different influences that are sort of um, personally uh, advantageous. Uh, or we yeah, believe they're personally advantageous. So I also think for an, for an entrepreneur, they need to be looking at the data as well. And maybe the data doesn't exist. And so the question is, you know, what data do you need to collect to figure out or validate your idea? Um, because uh, essentially, you know, and, and Clayton Christensen talks about this, and I think it's a really important idea. You know, even if you ask people, do they want or need something? they're probably, they might not know that they need whatever you're going to create, um, or they might not be um, forward thinking enough to say they would need it. So I think an entrepreneur also needs to be able to forecast the future in unique ways. But yes, I believe also that there can be some data that can, that can support that process. I guess it's also about, it's kind of how an individual leader changes their style, but I guess also about, so you might have the entrepreneur who's Who's very good with their gut, and uh, but there's maybe other people that can balance. How how do you mm. must open that? Have you seen any examples where it's been able yeah, to? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, I think the best. None of us are going, as I said, going to be able to occupy the full spectrum. At least I haven't mm. met anyone who's able to be an absolute perfectionist and an absolute accelerator. Um, and so we often have to surround ourselves by people who um, kind of supplement our weaknesses. Uh, and I think those are the best executive teams, right? And the worst executive teams are people that occupy their executive team with individuals that just are, yes, you know, uh, see the world the same way they do and say yes and, um, and are in complete agreement and, and like them, right? Although that's often the safer executive team where people think it's a safer one. And, and I'm always, um, I think, curious or amused by the people that that populate their teams with individuals that are just like them and see the world just like them because i think why have a team you could just do it on your own previous guest jennifer was um cynthia hansen who was talking a lot about the link between diversity of thought and the diversity of background and her, mm -hmm. her point of view is that they're very linked you can't almost separate them either saying look i've got to now harness my team i can't do it all myself i've got to check some of my own instincts basically to be successful and I've probably got to hire or, or build a team that looks very different from me. And there's all that whole, that whole question of how does that play to our sense of autonomy, that, that, that sense there. And advice to leaders or entrepreneurs who are trying to, because it can feel scary, I guess, right? I mean, it may all make sense, but it, it can be it's emotionally quite scary to do this. You mean to bring in people that are not like you? Yeah, exactly. I think it's yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. You're opening yourself up to more criticism, more conflict, right? I mean, the the... There's so much literature, not by, by people that are much smarter than me, who've done research on diversity and um, showing that like diversity isn't a panacea, that if diversity is managed poorly, diverse teams come up with worse outcomes than homogenous teams. So there's a lot more conscious management that has to happen and psychological safety in diverse teams and allowing the diversity to be heard. Um, so it is, I think, much scarier, but I'm gonna go back to the comfort zone idea, right? People like us are a comfort zone. 
and um, putting people on there that we know are going to challenge us is taking us out of the comfort zone and far more learning is going to happen there. Um, maybe some of the learning you don't actually want initially, right? When people say, oh, feedback is a gift, I'm like, oh, that's so not true. You, you like a gift, right? Feedback to me is like a really powerful vitamin that is unpleasant to swallow, right? So like it really helps you and um, it will make you better, make you feel better, make you better as an individual, but it is not pleasant. It's not like a present. I like unwrapping presents. I don't always like getting feedback. It's like uh, spinach as a child or something like that around. Uh, <laughs> yeah, kale, yeah. So maybe, like maybe, maybe kale, yeah. <laughs> my, my son actually likes spinach, so maybe kale. Yeah. I haven't tried that with him. Yeah, really the maturity as a leader, I guess, is important, I think, from what I'm hearing there on the autonomy point and seeing why it's helpful to have autonomy, but also to know when to temper it feels like a key key message I'm hearing as well. Um, maybe just the third balance or tension that I think that might be quite interesting to talk about in, in the context of motivation is around this idea of... Um, of, of purpose, right? And I often define purpose as the, um, really the ability to see how what you do helps and, and serves others, basically. Mm-hmm. And I think you touched on this idea of power, um, Jennifer, that, um, you know, this idea of how, you know, how, how do we think about power as a leader and there's intentions there. Do you want to expand a bit about that, the, the, um, that side of mm-hmm. it, you know, that sure. powerful versus, you know? Yeah, so one of the tensions is, is power holder versus power sharer. And um, I think there are times when a leader needs to hold the power, meaning being the one to control resources, to make decisions without necessarily asking input from others. Um, And sometimes they need to be the power sharer to empower others, um, especially when maybe they aren't the experts or other people might know more than them, or it might be a great learning opportunity for the other person, right? That's another reason to share power. And leaders that are not able to do play both spectrums are not successful so like there's this big buzzword now around empowerment 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 well it's not always appropriate to empower um there are times maybe the the followers are not well prepared for what you're going to present to them maybe they haven't been given enough of a frame around what they need to do so it's too ambiguous really for them to be successful maybe it's not a culture of feedback or they haven't been given feedback on the last time they attempted a task like this. And so they would make the same mistake again. Um, or maybe, you know, time is, or safety is a massive pressure. So if, um, you know, if people's lives are at stake and you are the leader, maybe empowering others is putting an undue burden on them that they, that, that is not, you know, it's kind of not empowerment, but rather it's just merely delegation because you don't want to be responsible yourself. So I think, you know, you need to sometimes be the power holder, for sure. Um, And sometimes you need to be the power sharer. And there was an interesting article in the New York Times about the CEO of Goldman Sachs. I think his name is, his last name is Solomon. I think his first name is Jeffrey. I'm not sure about that. But essentially, like, he's being criticized for being a bit too much of the power sharer and at a time of real uncertainty, not being the power holder and being more clear in his vision of what's going to happen and sort of putting too much um, too much weight or too much focus on the next generation, the youth in the organization, the kind of like the generation millennials, rather than on the more senior leaders. So it was interesting to sort of see a nice example of, you know, when sometimes the market or the public demands that you be the power holder. Yeah, is it kind of, is it almost saying then that you need to be both the leader and a follower. Is, is that a fair mm-hmm. interpretation of that, or is that what you say? I mean, I think different? we we talked about this briefly uh, in a previous conversation. Um, 
But, you know, I, I was telling my husband, I'm like, you know, I really have to put together, if I teach leadership, I really should put together a course on, on followership, because I think mm. you do also need to know when to, especially in the digital age, when the leaders often don't have the technical knowledge to bring forward some of the transformations that are necessary, like to sit on your hands, to let others take the credit, to let others be in the spotlight, to let others have the answer. And that does require, you know, being a follower, you know, essentially letting someone else take the lead and stepping back. And so I was like, you know, I think that could be such a powerful topic that we don't really represent right now at IMD. And he's well, you know, try to sell that. I'm sure people will come to IMD to take a course on being a follower. It's like, yeah, you know, I think you have to think about the marketing a bit on that, which I totally agree on. If, if someone does need to share power, as you were saying, certainly felt as a leader, sometimes like, um, not undermine sometimes, but often like, you know, there's a very passive kind of acceptance by a team or some of it, the people go on, some of it don't go on others or, of a journey, et cetera. And yeah, mm-hmm. I, do think, I do think there's a, a lot to think about with it. What could motivate followers as well because leaders are you kind of get the badges you get the acclaim you get many of the kind of extrinsic stuff followers mm-hmm. i think it's probably going to be a more intrinsic yeah, game about that. yeah i think no i would disagree with that i mean we know i wouldn't say necessarily this applies to okay if a leader steps back and plays a follower role but certainly being a follower i mean i think you can be an intrinsic follower and an extrinsic follower so like for mm-hmm. example if you follow somebody because you believe in their vision, right? Mm-hmm. Which is, by the way, why I'm not a fan of servant leadership, because I think a leader, even when they step back and are in the follower role, they still need to have a clear vision for where the future is going mm-hmm. to, where they're going, which I don't think servant leadership, the theory accounts for sufficiently, but that's, a, that's another topic. So I think, you know, intrinsic versus extrinsic followers, right? Sometimes we follow people because we truly believe in their vision. Um, so that would be like, I don't know, uh, a follower of of Gandhi or something, right? Yeah. Like there's no, you're not getting any extrinsic motivation yeah. to follow what you're following his belief because you believe in it yourself and it gives you some comfort and answers and motivates you perhaps. And then there's extrinsic followers, right? Like sometimes we follow a boss, not because we believe in their vision, right, but right, because right. we we're paid to do that, right? Mm-hmm. So I think sometimes you can just be incentivized extrinsically also to be a follower and yeah, yeah. They, can, they serve a role in the world too, I suppose. That's right. And one of the things, I mean, if you could um, help me with the, uh, I'm writing the second draft of the book, Jennifer, and is struggling with this, this with the chapters. This is going to be a shameless uh, request for help here. But one of the things I've been thinking about is, you know, we're very tough on our leaders these days, right? In most of the countries, we're not very, very impressed. I think the economists, for example, said of uh, British leadership, I'm, I'm based here in, in the UK. Yeah. Um, it's the worst for many generations, et cetera, et cetera. So we have very high standards. We're not, um, it's get to be critical, but what I was thinking about the book is what does it mean if you're a citizen? How can you be a good follower, right? And how can you help your country through through that? Yeah. Any perspective on I that? think it goes back to complacency, right? I think a good follower, and now we're talking about followers in the political realm, which I'm sorry to all the political scientists out there, I'm so not qualified to answer this question. So I'm gonna, this is more of my personal, no. not my academic viewpoint, but I think, you know, complacency and, a, and an unwillingness to really challenge the leadership um, out there. And I think that is the role to question. And I even see, you know, whether or not um, the rules around COVID are, are reasonable, I think there's just, I, I don't hear a lack of questioning um, as much in debate. And I think some of that is missing. And, and I think it's also missing from 
demanding better from our leaders. I certainly can, I think as an American, also identify with what you said about, about the UK. And, um, you know, I'm missing vision from our leaders on both sides, on both sides. And I, I think that vision is absolutely necessary. And I think that's what, why Obama was such a um, polarizing leader in a positive way that people really got behind him is because the vision was very clear. And I can't say that about the election this time around. And that makes me as an American very sad. And, you know, of course, I need to look at myself. Why am I also not demanding? Well, I mean, again, there's different ways to demand. But um, I think as a follower, you really have to step up there and question. And I don't see enough questioning. I see too much complacency. And I'll put myself in that category as well. I'm just struggling to reconcile, I guess, is the complacency. I definitely hear you there. And I'm, I'm certainly guilty as a citizen I voted myself sometimes, but mm -hmm. at the same time, we also seem to be really polarized ourselves on views, right? Look at the, the green, red states and blue states in the US, look at you know, what's happening in, in the UK with Brexit, all of these things. We also seem to, we're kind of complacent, we've also seemed to be taking these very ideological camps. We don't seem to want to get our leaders to compromise, right, as well. And many of the, the, the balances or tensions you mentioned it's almost like yeah. we don't want our leaders to think about those those tensions at all and, and find a good balance. But Yeah. And I mean, this is a semantic thing because um, I, I think I get what you're saying. I would always say that I wouldn't really want my leaders to... So to me, like a compromise is you want this, I want that. We're kind of going to split it down the middle rather than saying, are we really going to collaborate together? And I think that is the ideal um, form of political... Um, participation is or coordination is is actual collaboration not just compromise um, but I would say that you know it goes back to that comfort right we're, we're complacent but we're really not willing to act all the time because most of us and and when people are protesting or people that are protesting are often the ones that aren't very comfortable and I think that might be the problem, at least in the Western world. I think in, it's different in other parts of the world and you know, the Western um, more affluent societies, right? A lot of us are just too comfortable and we're not in enough pain to put that effort and divert the attention away from more selfish, um, more selfish pursuits to ask for something better. And comfort is always the enemy of change. In the world of work, right, that idea of listening versus telling, kind of the expert, and mm -hmm. it's you can get complacent, right? And I guess as citizens, what you're saying, Fender, is like almost things are we kind of expect to be in this point where things are being you know managed in our politics pretty technically, you know, things are okay. Why should we put the effort? And I guess this this involves us as, as citizens learning, confronting new ground, taking on things. I guess whether it's climate change or inequality or more serious issues there as well. I normally deal on much smaller scales, like organizations, not entire societies. But um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm thinking loud as well, but it just feels like there's so many interesting parallels. I think with with this because it feels like that uh, these tensions you mentioned, I think, are ones where our political leaders don't seem to be thinking about these very actively. Right? It's very much mm -hmm. as a default. It becomes uh, nowadays rhetoric it's kind of bravado it's not really thoughtfully thinking how do i get this balance right so i know maybe maybe, mm -hmm. maybe research could take this to another, another direction and uh yeah another time yeah. feels like we have such a crisis of motivation and and, and i do think it's also hmm, you know just like you asked earlier why don't leaders populate their executive teams or their teams with people that are unlike them rather than like them and i think it goes the same to why don't 
citizens demand differently because it creates so much more conflict. And I see it even now is, you know, speaking up and saying, this is not okay, or I'm actually uncomfortable with what's going on will create, you're probably going to lose more friends or relationships than you're going to gain, at least initially. And I don't think many of us are, have that courage to do that. And I think courage comes in here a lot too, right? Getting out of your comfort zone or going to that other side of the pole as a leader it requires courage because you're far more likely to fail or lose things. And for many of us, right, there are, there are several key drivers or motivations. We can talk about motivations, right? One is motivation for power and need for power. Uh, one is a motivation for achievement and one is a motivation for affiliation to be liked. And for many of us, like that's a, a dominant motivation for many. And, um, and I put myself in that category. I'm a high need for affiliation person. And I think that need for affiliation, that driver, that motivation to be liked often keeps us from really challenging and being the follower or the leader that we, we should be. Because the, 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 the pain that goes along with exclusion is one of the worst pains that humans can go through, right? I mean, essentially we're involved, we, we evolved to be included. You know, years or millennial millennials ago, uh, if we were excluded, it could often mean death, right? If the group excluded you. So I think we evolved to be included. Yeah, really. Because I remember when I first led my first organization, the chair of my board said, you know, leadership is not a popularity contest. And I think I was trying to please everyone, I think, in that regard. And it's really hard to get out of that that whole habit. And I wonder there that, um, yeah, that idea of genuine kind of intrinsic motivation, you really believe in this, uh, your you know, a vision for the, for the future, where you want to go and feel that sense mm -hmm. that kind of drives that and maybe overcomes the fear, I think. And maybe that's what we need in our politics as well as our uh, yeah, organization. Perhaps, perhaps yeah. So a, a, very, a very wise coach once told me something similar that being a leader often means doesn't not being liked. Um, and so that sticks in my head because it's not something I'm, I'm good at. <laughs> interesting discussion i think this idea of the expert versus the the learner i think was a really interesting tension to talk about what will motivate someone to to want to keep developing mastery talked about this whole idea of um uh, around sort of power and how we think about um letting that go and how do you how do you as a leader you know i said perhaps embrace diverse teams or use others strengths that might feel uncomfortable and this idea of intuition right how do we sort of you know just be be humble about what our intuition can give us as well and it feels like all these drivers link so much to what will motivate us to want to change. And in politics, there are ideas some, some very strong parallels mm -hmm. as well. And this idea of fellowship as well is really powerful. Can we try and develop a, a clearer concept and be more active and useful followers, I guess, is another takeaway. Yeah. So the only thing I would say in closing, like there's a difference between actually being a master and feeling or having mastery or have achieved mastery and feeling like you have achieved mastery. Mm -hmm. And I think to really learn, you have to never kind of feel like you've achieved mastery. Like there's always something left to learn. And I think that feeling of like, I know it all, or I'm a master of something. Like even when they give you a PhD, like to me, that's such a strange, like you're a doctor of philosophy in this topic, like you are an expert. Yeah. And I just think when you get a PhD, you're only just starting to understand something, right? So like, do you feel, do you feel mastery or have you really achieved mastery? And I think that feeling of mastery is, can be a bit dangerous um, because maybe then you stop pursuing an answer or the answers or whatever. Thanks so much, Jennifer, for the time today. Really fascinating discussion. Um, thanks so much. And uh, 
wish you all the best. Thank you again for really, really exciting. Absolutely. Um, my pleasure. Bye. Reignited is brought to you and hosted by Sharath Jeevan. Produced and narrated by Leslie Lotto. The assistant producer is Michael Jacob. Thanks for listening. 